Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would respond to some patron emails. Let me introduce the podcast. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am a licensed therapist, and I am also a professor at Antioch University Seattle in the Couple and Family Therapy Program. This email is from Patron Torin. It reads, Dear Dr. Honda, I really enjoyed the episode you did on Mindhunter. Are criminals made or are they born? What is the difference between a psychopath and a sociopath? According to psychological theory, which one is more influenced by nature and which one is more influenced by nurture? I'm just curious because this term psychopath seems to be thrown around in pop culture a lot without a a deeper understanding by the public, similar to how the public confuses schizophrenia with multiple personality disorder. I think the term psychopath and sociopath are often mistakenly used interchangeably, so I'm just trying to get some clarification on what are the actual differences between psychopaths and sociopaths. Okay, that email is from Patron Torin. Uh, Good questions. Uh, We've talked about this in other episodes, so I'm not going to do a super deep dive on this, but I will try to answer them as concisely as possible. So the first question is, is are criminals made or are they born? This is a classic debate that has been going on for centuries, and it's really the classic debate of psychology in general. Are, you know, are our personalities, are we born with them or are they a product of socialization? And there have been debates and there have been um, fights among psychology people and among people in the lay public. And it's just a very in – in the past, it was much more of a hot topic. Today, I th- well, I'm guessing it still is kind of a hot topic, right? Um, like when people have racist ideas, it's like, well, Mexicans are criminals because they're born that way or something. You know, God, you know, stuff – horrible stuff like that. So anyway um, – yeah, it's been debated for a long time, and the, the short answer to your question, are criminals made or are they born? The short answer is we don't know. Anyone who claims to know is talking out of their ass, really, or they're trying to sell a book or something. We just don't know, just like we don't know anything, really, about psychology. Uh, we, we can observe things. We can say, like, well, you know, people tend to do this on average, or people who have this history, it's correlated with this thing, but we have no way of being able to demonstrate cause, really. It's really hard to do that. So, I mean, just think about some major things in psychology or about biology and the, and the brain that we don't understand. We don't understand why we dream. <laughs> I mean, it, dreaming is such, I mean, criminality is is only among some humans. Dreaming is universal. Even other animals dream. We have no idea why we dream. Uh, And to really extend that, we have no idea why we sleep. (laughs) I mean, that we don't often talk about this in psychology or in the media of just like how stupid we are about things today. You know, we like to think of ourselves as like the end of the road, right? And just think about 200 years ago, how people thought they were at the end of the road of technology and of understanding the body. And of course, when you look back at it, it's like they do nothing. I mean, people were still bleeding people, you know, for for medicine uh, up until up into the 20th century, I think. And so it, we, we just don't know. And, and currently, if you ask any any anyone who isn't trying to sell a book or trying to sell you something, if you just really ask them, they will say, no, we have no idea why we sleep. We have no idea why we dream. Um, you know, we're, we're unconscious for a third of, of each day. Uh, unconscious, completely unconscious, completely vulnerable to anyone who wants to hurt us. It doesn't make any evolutionary sense. It seems like it's uh, because we, we inherited our sleeping from previous species, right? So we're not the only species that sleep. So, you know, just like uh, other primates have eyes, other primates have fingers, well, other primates sleep, and and it goes way back, you know, other animals way down the chain uh, sleep. And it's like, it seems like that would have been evolved out, right? There, It seems like there would have been something that uh, would have mutated in the DNA that would have allowed for not having to sleep or or not having to sleep so much 
We sleep for a third of our lives. We're unconscious, you know. We're completely incapacitated. Uh, and if we don't get a third of our lives asleep, we become completely dysfunctional. And so it's just uh, it's just this really bizarre thing. Uh, so if we don't know why we sleep and we don't know why we dream, we definitely don't know why we commit criminal acts. So... Um, so that's the short answer is we don't know we don't know if criminals are made or if they're born. The longer answer is the first thing we have to do is define what you mean by criminal. By some definitions I'm a criminal because I've committed crimes like, you know, minor crimes or stuff I did when I was a youth, which I won't get into right now. But, you know, I I'm a criminal. Most of us are criminals because we've committed quote-unquote crimes. Um, you know, are we talking about someone who's ever committed a crime or someone who's prone to committing a crime or someone who's committed several crimes or, um, you know, what about someone who needs to commit crimes to, to survive in their neighborhood? Are they a criminal? So we really just have to define that. And of course, that really muddies the waters, right? Well, when we look at empirical and observational and, and experimental data, it seems that people are born with traits that influence criminality and people's environment is also a factor. So it's just like most answers, you know, from us psychology types will say, you know, let's say is bipolar or is it, is it, you know, is it biology or is it nature? Is it nurture? Is depression nature or nurture? And the answer is it's a combination of nature and nurture. So, you know, uh, there's that. Um, same with personality disorders. They seem to be uh, related to both nature and nurture. In other words, you have to have sort of a disposition for it, and then you, you have to have the environmental conditions that promote it. Um, the Psychopaths and Mindhunter, the TV show on Netflix, were good examples of this. They, they seemingly had very rough childhoods, and they seemingly were different from other people in that they had zero empathy for others, and they took pleasure in making other people suffer. You know, there's lots of people who have rough childhoods, but there's only a very, very small percentage of people who would do this sort of things of the nature that the Mindhunter criminals did. So we're talking about a very odd, um, you know, path of, of psychology and behavior. Having said that, there are cases where someone seemingly had a perfect childhood and from an early age exhibited extremely psychopathic and sadistic behaviors and motivations. So it's really a mystery. But in my opinion, based on the data I've seen, it seems that you need both. You need both a disposition and a mistreatment during childhood to become the sort of uh, sadistic psychopathic killer that is present in Mindhunter. You ask here, what is the difference between psychopath and sociopath? You, you allude to uh, a common notion that these terms are very different and that they often are used mistakenly interchangeably. Well, in psychology, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder have often been used interchangeably and as, as synonyms for each other. Um, and let me go into some discussion on this. So antisocial personality disorder is generally diagnosed as a behavioral condition associated with a history of antisocial behavior and or criminal behavior. So it's so antisocial personality disorder is the is in the DSM. Psychopathy and sociopathy are not in the DSM. The DSM is our is our diagnostic manual that we use in mental health. So if it's not in the diagnostic manual, then authors outside of the DSM are kind of free to define it however they want, although psychopathy has been defined um, it's sort of in a consensus manner more recently by Hare uh, and, and his measure. But anyway, so, um, so antisocial personalities, so the DSM is, is really focused on behaviors. It's, it's, it tries to make it observable and not based on vague or un, undemonstrable qualities like personality traits. You know, you can't, if someone is, has a personality trait of, of a lack of empathy, for example, it's hard to demonstrate that because technically you could have a total lack of empathy for other people, but never actually harm anyone. So how do you measure the fact that someone doesn't have any empathy? How do you measure um, having more empathy or not empathy? Whereas if whereas the DSM tries to stick to behavioral things like 
have you committed a crime? Were you diagnosed with conduct disorder as a child? You know, these are these are kind of objective things that you can look at. Having said that, it, it, as I get into it, um, which I will right now, actually, um, it's um, it's not. They they try to make it as concrete as possible. Let's just put it that way in the DSM. Whereas people who talk about psychopathy and sociopathy are much more um, freer. They don't have to, you know, stick to that sort of. Uh, rigor regarding uh, observable behaviors. So the so in the DSM it, in general I'm not going to read all the different criteria but um in general the DSM uh defines antisocial personality disorder as a childhood history of antisocial behavior um usually in the form of a diagnosis of conduct disorder, a lack of remorse, a disregard for rules and laws, violation of the rights of others, lack of stability at work and lack of stability in relationships, irritability, aggressiveness, irresponsibility, and recklessness. So, you know, for instance, just to take one of these, recklessness, you know, what? how do we define one, one person is being reckless and the other person is not being reckless? It, those are hard things to define, and they're in the eye of the beholder, but they are a little bit more on the side of behavioral observations. Whereas with psychopathy, which, again, most people use hair's measure now, which is hasn't always been the case and isn't always the case, but uh, because hair's measure is uh, – hair's um, psychological test is not in the DSM. It's just the what people have decided upon, particularly people who work in forensic criminal psychology um, have decided hair's measure is, is the gold standard. But that's just because people have just decided that. It's not, you know, there's not a god on high who decides these things. It's just social constructs among psychologists. You're just like, yeah, I think this this works for us. Let's stick with this. It's just, the, it's just a decision. Anyway, so psychopathy, uh, according to this emerging consensus over the last couple decades, is that uh, you, again, have to have a childhood history of antisocial behavior, very, you know, the same as antisocial. But you need to have a lack of empathy. So here is something that you can observe behaviorally, but you can also observe through interviews with them. You, you just get a sense of them. Like, I don't think this person has empathy. A lack of, rem- of remorse, which is the same as antisocial. Fake charm. So this is getting, uh, this is actually behavioral, and for whatever reason in antisocial, they don't emphasize this. An inflated sense of self-worth. So here we're getting into more internal kinds of personality traits. Uh, pathological lying, manipulative, shallow emotions, irresponsibility, promiscuous sexual behavior, blaming others and refusing to accept responsibility, and criminal acts in several realms. So although I'm using different words with the criteria uh, and psychopathy is, if, if you just looked at the two definitions of antisocial personality disorder and and psych, psychopathic personality disorder or psychopathy, you would see different words. You would see different criteria. But really, when you break it down, it's possible that they're describing the exact same people, just with different words. So, uh, so I just want to highlight that. I'll get more into that in a second. Okay, so we have antisocial, we have psychopathy, and we have sociopathy. Um, so sociopathy is an older term that very few authors use these days. And, and often when they do use it in clinical literature, they, they just say that it's, that it's not really a useful term anymore. So, so sociopathy, uh, I, I don't ever use that term, uh, I, in my work or in my travels, I will use antisocial and I'll use psychopathy because I do think that they do describe a, a slightly different construct and and honestly, I like psychopathy better. A lot of people in forensic psychology, in my experience, like like the psych- psychopathy measure better because it's more descriptive, and um, I don't know, it just it just seems to fit the reality of the world a little better than any social personality disorder. Because historically, any social personality disorder has been used for some people who actually a- absolutely have empathy. And they have just been sort of forced into a life of antisocial. So antisocial personality disorder, to a lot of people, they don't necessarily care if it's describing an actual personality. Some some people are just like, well, you know, 
this guy's exhibiting like a lot of really horrible behavior. So, you know, he's antisocial. And they, whereas people who are applying the label of psychopathy, I, in my experience, they're, they're just a little bit more careful about it. It's like, well, okay, sure, that guy's committed a lot of crimes, but is he truly a psychopath? You know, they try to make that distinction. Um, so now you could debate whether or not uh, any of that is really um, a true use of the term antisocial. And a lot of people would say that uh, antisocial is used too liberally, particularly in the criminal uh, system, in the justice system, uh, often as a sort of justification for locking people up and treating people badly. But but the idea is, is like there's a classic example is you have a guy who grows up in a really rough neighborhood and in order to survive, he has to get tough and he has to, um, you know, get into fights and he has to get a gun and a knife and he has to defend himself. And maybe his gang is being threatened by a by a gang down the street. And so they have to go down the street and and actually like seek out them and 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 maybe even kill people. And by definition for antisocial, you're like, wow, that person's antisocial. But their personality is actually not uh, – they actually have empathy. They're actually doing all these things to survive. Like you wouldn't call a soldier in World War II antisocial, right? You would just say, well, he's he's in, he's in the military. And, but what about him killing and stabbing and just ruthlessly butchering hundreds of, of enemy soldiers? Isn't that – isn't that callous? Isn't that lack of remorse? Isn't that, um, to some extent, murderous and criminal in some ways? And the and and we would say no. It's like it's contextual, right? So, um, so anyway, uh, back to sociopathy here. Um, so back in the old days, they used to distinguish psychopaths between primary psychopaths and secondary psychopaths. So so primary psychopaths were people who were born that way. They were born basically without empathy. And then secondary psychopaths were people who were socialized to become who to, to, to who were socialized to act like a psychopath essentially, and these people were labeled as sociopaths. So sociopath was a subset of psychopath, if that makes any sense. And they were essentially through their childhoods they 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 were pushed in a direction that they wouldn't have gone normally towards psychopathic behavior and, and a psychopathic way of thinking. But they presented much differently. They might have empathy, actually, for other people. They might be suffering a lot more. Primary psychopaths in the, in the old literature, they would sort of define as just, just someone who just was born that way. They don't care, and they'll never care, and, and they're not suffering. They're just like bumping up against society and getting in trouble, and they don't really know why, and they don't really care. Whereas sociopaths have been abused and traumatized, and they're sort of acting out their trauma and their 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 difficulty, but deep down they're they're a good person. They have they have a good foundation of a personality, and with treatment they can actually be quote unquote cured. So, uh, so that so again back in the old days. For the most part, sociopathy was a subset of psychopathy in which it was someone who uh, it was basically a, a created psychopath, but someone who could be um, unmade a psychopath, whereas a primary psychopath, they're born that way and they're stuck that way. So you'll hear that often. You'll say, well, a, socio you know, a sociopath is someone who had a rough childhood and, and isn't really the same as a psychopath. A psychopath is truly an evil human being. But in today's world, again, sociopath isn't used. I, I've never known a psychologist to actually diagnose someone with, with sociopathy. Uh, I'm sure it happens sometimes. But th the the main terms are antisocial personality disorder, which is in the DSM, and then you have this psych psychopathy, which is defined in mainly by Hare's 20-item uh, measure. And sociopathy isn't used at all. Maybe in conversation it'll be used. But anyway. Um, now, for some, these definitions are different. And for some, they are the same. Some researchers claim that psychopaths are a subset of antisocial, about a third. Uh, meaning that, like, uh, according to some eyes some eyes and some of some beholders, when they uh, use Hare's measure against um, common 
understandings of antisocial personality disorder, they will say that psychopaths are the most severe of the antisocial personality disorder people. So, so in other words, psychopathy is, is a subset of antisocial personality disorder. And often it's like a quarter or a third of people who have antisocial also qualify for the diagnosis, quote unquote, of psychopathy. Um, but to me, it doesn't really matter because these aren't really scientific terms. You know, the, these are vague descriptive terms that rely on the opinion of the observer. It's like saying, um, it's like, it's like you hold up a song by Taylor Swift and you're like, is this song good or is it bad? Do we, you know, is, is this Do we diagnose this song as a bad song or do we diagnose this song as a good song? You know, I, I hope that demonstrates that it really depends on the opinion of the individual who is assessing the song. It also depends on the culture you're in. You know, some people in the United States are going to look at it different than someone in Japan who's different from Mongolia, different from India, different from, you know, Lebanon. Everyone, you know, culture is going to affect the way you look at it. Also, time and when in time. A hundred years from now, when they hear a Taylor Swift song, how are they going to feel about it? Is it going to be different? I bet you it's going to be different. I mean, all you have to do is listen to top 40 from the past and you're like, my God, like top 40 in the past was terrible. (laughs) You know, the super annoying songs at times, you know? And so, and I, and if, if you're not familiar with that process, actually go listen to actual top 10 songs because often the top 10 songs of a year do not survive because they're so bad <laughs> um, that, that, you know, when you think back, you're like, oh, the 60s were great, you know, music in the 60s was so good. It's like, no, 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 no. You're just thinking of the songs you like from the 60s or the songs that are survived from the 60s. If you actually listen to top 10 songs from the 60s, you're like, man, pop music has sucked since time immemorial, <laughs> you know, 50s, 70s, 80s. Um, although, I, since I grew up as a teenager in the 80s, there are certain years like 1984, 85, you know, 80, 83 to 85-ish where um, I was a 13-year-old and in love with Top 40. And so therefore, all the Top 40 songs from those years are awesome. <laughs> but uh, that's just because I was primed at, at that age. But anyway, so so you know, when we look at psychopathy and we look at antisocial personality disorder or sociopathy, these things aren't real things. Just like a bad song isn't a real thing. A good song isn't a real thing. When we look at a tree or we look at a salamander or we look at a granite rock or we look at diamonds or we look at carbon or we look at the sun, these are these are concrete, actual things. When we look at antisocial personality disorder, this is just a construct that a, s- a small group of people have, d- have decided to define through these descriptive words like um, irritability or lack of remorse or aggressiveness. You know, when it, like when we look at songs, if we try to define what is a good song, you could say like, well, a good song is one that has a consistent rhythm. A good song is something that stays within a particular key, at least for a time. A good song is something that, um, you know, stays in tune. A good song is is something that uh, doesn't have wild changes and doesn't wobble around. You know, there's certain—so you, you could try to define it that way, but I guarantee you, you could come up with examples of good, quote-unquote, good songs that maybe you like— that don't follow that convention. Plus, you could find terrible songs that do follow those conventions. And so we all understand that that's art. Well, when it comes to the distinction or even uh, the label between not having antisocial and having antisocial, I hope you understand that there's there's a gray zone. And unless you fit the criteria ex- exactly, um, which a lot of people don't, then it's like, well, you know, it's, it's up to the eye of the beholder, right? So... So it, it actually really bothers me when I hear pedantic people say, hey, you know, those are different terms. Antisocial is different from psychopathy and different from sociopathy. And I'm just like, well, sort of. Uh, but, but really, um, the only consensus we can really say in our field is that we have a, a fairly as, as clear as possible definition of antisocial personality disorder because it's in the DSM. Psychopath and sociopath have, have been defined by some authors, but... 
but not to the point that an antisocial has. And, you know, and I hope that this demonstrates the nature of psychological labels and diagnosing. And I've talked about this many times before. It's, it's based on opinion of the people who define the criteria. It's based on opinion of the people who are observing the individual in question. It's based on the opinion of applying those criteria. Um, now, it's based on quote-unquote research, right? It's based on uh, people. It's not just, it's not, the DSM authors don't just wake up in the morning and just say, ah, I think I'll do this. No, they, you know, they look at the research and they, they look at the literature and they look at the understandings. But all of that research is not, is not the same kind of research that we do when we look at granite or when we look at a diamond. When we look at a diamond, it's a, there are, we have technologies that allow us to study the exact components of a diamond. We can, I don't know how they do it, but I know that they have, you know, physics and chemistry. They've been able to demonstrate that diamonds are made of, uh, you know, unless it has impurities, it's made of carbon and it's, and it's, uh, laid out in a very specific way. The, the atoms are of carbon are organized in such a way that uh, when we look at them as a clump, it's, it's in the form of a diamond. And those are scientific, it's scientific research that uh, gives us those, those knowledges. But when it comes to psychology, it's like we're, we're, we're human, humans observing other humans and we're just like, well, you know, it kind of looks like these things kind of hang together. And the other thing is, is over time, we change the criteria. Humans haven't changed, but our criteria have. Uh, some things have been included in the DSM. Like we, like, I, I know I've talked about this before, but we used to have being homosexual as, as a mental disorder. It, you were mentally ill if you were gay in the past, according to the DSM. And we look back at that now and we're like, well, that was stupid. So, but back then they thought, well, this is science. It's in the DSM. And, but you look at it more critically and more culturally and you're like, no, a group of Western psych psychologists were attempting to categorize some things as being mentally ill and some things as being not mentally ill. Some things are mental disorders and some things are not mental disorders. And it was up to them you know, to gather as much information and research as possible and opinions and, and try to build a consensus around what should be categorized as what and what should be categorized as something else, you know. So, uh, so there's that. <laughs> now, that doesn't mean that these are worthless constructs. They are worthwhile, but we just have to understand all of that that I just said whenever we talk about these things. They're not things. They are constructs that we have decided for ourselves. Just like if a group of people got together and decided to define what a good song was and what a bad song was. In, a, in 50 years, it'll probably change. And, and, you know, there's all that kind of stuff. Okay. So, but really, to me, the main question here, to me, is why are we so fascinated with these distinctions? I get this question all the time. What, you know, what is the definite, and, and honestly, I used to ask these questions myself until I really started looking into it. And then I was like, well, I don't know if I really care anymore. But back in the day, before I really understood the nature of diagnosing and psychopathy and the DSM and everything, I used to be fascinated with it too. And I, I mean, I suppose it, it is sort of an interesting topic, but, but why are we as a society particularly lay people, incidentally, why are, why are we so fascinated with the difference between sociopathy, psychopathy, and antisocial? You know, no one emails me and asks me about the distinction between an adjustment disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder. No one, no one emails me and asks me for the distinction between major depression and, and dysthymia. You're not going to be at a dinner party and have that pedantic asshole in the corner saying like, well, you know, generalized anxiety disorder is completely different from, uh, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder. You really can't use those things interchangeably. You know, I'm sort of making fun of people who are pedantic about sociopathy and, and, and psychopathy. It's like it's the one tiny, tiny little corner of, of psychology and of the DSM that uh, is, is talked about like way, way more than is 
uh, is justified given the amount of people who actually could be labeled with these things. I mean, so many more people have have adjustment disorders. So many more people have post-traumatic stress disorder. So many more people have generalized anxiety and OCD and depression and dysthymia. You know, why are we so fascinated with this? You know, why are there so many podcasts and TV shows and movies about psychopaths and people who do these kinds of things? Well, my speculation is we all have a suppressed urge to eliminate our enemies. Since we have been um, interacting with other people, perhaps even our own parents, we have had an urge to just destroy people that bother us. And but we learn early on, hopefully, that that is immoral and bad, and so we suppress all those urges. We suppress the urge to destroy other other people. And now, I'm not saying that everyone has an inner psychopath. Well, maybe I am kind of saying that. Um, you know, think about uh, if you have young kids, uh, think about the way that they act, you know, when they're two, three, four, and they get upset, like they're their sister or brother or another kid on the playground frustrates them. You will see children act in psychopathic ways. They will, you know, it's like, um, you know, just it's sort of a stark example. Say a three-year-old goes to the playground and a three, the three-year-old boy sees another boy playing with a Batman car and the three-year-old boy is jealous of that Batman car. And the three-year-old is like, oh, man, that looks really cool. And the three-year-old uh, just will just walk up, you know, depending on the three-year-old and depending on the situation. The three-year-old, are, you can see it in their eyes. They want to they just take it. They don't care. <laughs> they want to just walk up there and take it. And so they'll be like, uh, you know, some, some of the three-year-olds will just walk up, take it. They'll just be like, this is mine. And then the kid with the Batman car will start crying. And the kid who took the Batman car doesn't give a shit. <laughs> Just like, this is mine now, fucker, and I'm taking this home with me. <laughs> That's psychopathic. You know, it's not yours. And the, the, you've created suffering. Or even a more stark example is you'll, you'll be a two-year-old or a one-and-a-half-year-old. Uh, you, as a parent, will uh, be frustrating the kid somehow. Like, the kid wants to... Uh, play with a certain toy or something and, and you need to put them down for a nap or something. And so you pick them up and you're taking them away from their toys and they will turn to you and they will try to kill you with their hands that, you know, there are some kids will just turn to you and they'll just start beating your face with their hands. Now, since they're only 18 months old, they don't do much damage and you don't like it, but you're not, it doesn't hurt that much. But imagine if they had the strength of an adult or had a gun in their hands, they would use it because they don't care in that moment. They're psychopathic. They're angry and they want to eliminate you because they, because their, their short term goal is they want to go back to playing with those toys. Now I know this, you know, is debatable. Would an 18 year old actually kill an adult if they, if they had a chance? Um, It's, you know, it's a bit of a nonsensical question, but I hope you get my point is that early on, we all have urges that are at least on the, on the spectrum of things uh, a lot meaner and and more immoral and less and less um, pro-social than we develop later on in life. Hopefully, right? Well, we we the only way we can deal with that those urges is by constantly suppressing them with our ego. We're constantly just pushing it back, pushing it back. Just like no, 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 no. Don't destroy your enemies. That is not a good thing for you. It doesn't work out. It's it's not fair, and there'll be consequences and blah blah blah. And and we have empathy for other people. So it's not. And eighteen year olds also have empathy for other people too. Um, it's not like they don't. But the point is, is that we're we're constantly pushing this down, and we we really there's a part of us, a small part of us, but a potent part of us that really wants it to come out. And so we have to find ways to sublimate that and. One of the ways is through TV shows like Mindhunter and through um, asking me about the difference between psychopath and sociopath and antisocial personality disorder, I suppose. Now, I'm not shaming people for asking me these questions. You know, go ahead and ask. Uh, uh, you know, I'm a human too. I find it interesting. But I just wanted to say that. I just wanted to say, like, isn't it interesting that that we're so fascinated with this, you know, pretty rare condition, particularly on the level of Mindhunter, right, where you have people who are uh, serial killers 
these are extremely rare individuals, and why are we so fascinated with it? It's the same with uh, spree killings right now. You you asked if you ask someone in general, you know the the tragedy that happened in Florida. You ask the average American or or even the average human on the planet, uh, you know, are where are we headed in terms of crime and murder? And they'd say, they'd say, well, it's just getting worse, right? It's just, it's getting worse and worse and worse. You know, uh, these, these people are these AR 15 killers, you know, every day it's just getting worse and worse and worse. And yes, the, the, the prevalence of the, the rate of people going on spree killings has been drastically increasing, uh, over the years, but it, 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 but the overall homicide rate has gone down. So although spree killings have gone up, uh, spree killings actually account for a very small percentage of the total homicides that occur in the United States. And uh, and and so you know it'd be like, what would it be like? It'd be like saying, um, you know, say like a particular sort of cancer is getting more prevalent, like testicular cancer is on the rise. But when you think about all the different kinds of cancers, um, all of those are reducing because we have, uh, you know, educated people about smoking and about heart health and about um, good, you know, foods that are good for you and all this kind of stuff. And so so the rates of, of cancer are declining, but one particular kind of cancer is increasing because of one particular factor. And, and, uh, again, impossible to know, but I would speculate based on my own opinion and based on experts that have convinced me of this is that the reason why spree killings are on the rise is because of our increase in media attention to it. Um, you know, it, I'm old enough to, to remember when, uh, media in the, when I was a kid, was there. There was news and whatnot, but it was a real small part of people's lives. It, today, news stories are a part of our uh, not not just daily life, but like minute by minute. We, you know, with Twitter and everything, it's like we we are aware of things that are happening all over the planet. Anything that's clickable, anything that's clickbait, anything that's of interest, or anything that makes people scared, is instantly transported right into our palms. And, uh, and so if there's a spree killing, we hear about it right away. And so, and then we do, you know, 24 seven news coverage for weeks about it. And so if you're a uh, disillusioned, struggling, suffering young man, and, uh, and you, for whatever reason, um, are really angry at other people and, also, for whatever reason, kind of interested in gaining gaining some sort of notoriety and some sort of attention from society, which a lot of people want, particularly given the way that we privilege it today, then you're going to see this as a viable option. You're going to be like, well, I'm sort of at the end of my rope right now, and I, I don't really see any other ways out of life. Um, you know, I, I'm not happy. No one seems to like me. I'm isolated. I'm really angry. I, I, you know, I really want revenge on certain people, and you know what? I, and you know, it'd be kind of cool to be famous. You know, to be seen as 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 that guy who did that thing. I mean, you know, that's pretty cool. I mean, because the other thing is that that I've realized uh, after making episodes about Elliot Roger and other kinds of people like this is that there's a there's a minority of people, but a but when you know a minority of seven and a half billion people can amount to millions of people, right? There, there's a minority of people on the planet who actually will really look up to these figures. There's a minority of people who worship people like Elliot Roger and and really think he was awesome. And so people look at that and they you know they notice it. Young men notice that kind of thing, and they're just like, well. Yeah, sure. A lot of people are going to hate me, but you know, some, there's going to be some people that are going to like consider me kind of like a hero. And when you add all those up things together, I would speculate that's why you see this massive climb in these kinds of crime. What often gets focused on is gun control, and I'm all for looking at that for sure. We should. And then you know, the the Republicans will look at mental mental health, which obviously isn't as a is another factor, but. Uh, you know the the um, guns have been present in the in the United States for a long time. Uh, in, in fact, I, I saw a recent statistic that 
the percentage of households with guns has actually declined in the United States since uh, over the past number of decades. So although there's still a shit ton of guns in the United States and and more households, incidentally, the, but, you know, uh, anyway, so the point is, is that um, gun control is something to, to absolutely look at. And we are, um, you know, our politicians are in the hands of the NRA, NRA with that. Um, we have a pretty abysmal amount of tax dollars that are spent on mental health and on supporting people. So that's a problem that our government is to blame for. So our government is to blame for both of those issues. But we are to blame for the media attention that is given to individuals like this. And we are to blame for being fascinated with it to the point that we encourage media companies to produce material, to produce content like this because it sells ad revenue, right? They are media. All they're interested in is making, you know, getting you to pay attention. They don't care what they talk about to make you pay attention. I mean, all you have to do is just watch uh, news channels and realize, like, oh, these people aren't really interested in the news. They're just interested in keeping you watching, just like any other TV show. That's the purpose, you know. There's not some sort of government agency that like looks at news organizations and says you have provided a good service to the to the american people here is a billion dollars no all of their money comes from ads and so uh you know and ads are paying them for for viewers they're not paying them for uh, pulitzer prizes or anything like that so so we are to blame for paying attention to that and and not actually doing anything about it it, it's just getting worse and worse and worse. There are some movements that, you know, like on Reddit, they actually will not uh, the upvote. The, the kinds of things that rise to the front page on Reddit have nothing to do with the actual killer in these spree killings. Uh, re- people on Reddit know enough to say, what we need to focus on are the victims. And we're going to profile the victims. We're going to call the victims heroes. These are the people that we're going to pay attention to. And we're not going to pay attention to the killer and we're not going to pay attention to why they did it. We're not going to pay attention to their manifesto or whatever it was they were trying to publicize because that's only encouraging future killing sprees, right? So so there are movements for sure, but it, you know, in the vast sea of media in our country and our society, um, you know, uh, the general thing that's happening is, is is just getting worse and worse and worse. Yeah, a similar thing happened in Los Angeles when, you know, uh, with regards to um, police chases. So in the early days, there were, you know, suddenly you had these helicopters to, that could cheaply fly around Los Angeles and and track criminals, these police uh, helicopters. And then you had news helicopters who would, um, you know, look for news to happen underneath the helicopter. And then you had things like the OJ um, chase, which produced millions upon millions of dollars for uh, certain media outlets. They made millions. So just imagine that you have a helicopter in the sky that manages to get a camera on OJ Simpson for, I don't know, hours, right? That made them millions of dollars. Now, what they'll say is like, oh, my God, it was such a scoop. It was so amazing. No, 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 no. Uh, uh, yeah, what, the, what happened in a very, very real way was these media companies uh, managed, managed to find something to point their camera at that, pe- that people pay, t- paid attention to so they could sell you commercials. And so eventually these news companies started going, huh, this is worth investing in. Let's, let's spend money on you know, buying a helicopter ourselves and we'll actually employ – particular, um, you know, or will contract for this sort of service. And, and yes, please helicopter news people send us, send us, you know, car chases because people love watching car chases live. And then, uh, lo and behold, uh, as that became a trend, people started purposely getting into car chases with the, the cops because they wanted to be famous they would drive around, and there's 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 actually like a mini documentary about this um, on YouTube. I think <clears throat> people started driving around uh, and waving at the camera, and like, and they weren't even really they did they hadn't really done anything bad. They would just, you know, like in the in the old days, it'd be like 
there was a murder and they're trying to get away or, <clears throat> or a robbery and they're trying to get away or OJ Simpson and, you know, make your own judgment there. But there people are trying to actually get away and they just happen to be caught by the, the cameras. And, but there was, there was a, there was a subset of people who weren't actually running away from anything or they were running away from something quite minor. And they thought, well, you know, I might as well string this out to get famous. And they would drive to their old neighborhoods and, you know, they would, pose for selfies with people and they get back in the car and they'd speed off. And then, you know, and they just, they just like do it's like, there, here's my 15 minutes. And it's really terrible because they would drive at like 110 miles an hour down these side streets and like kill people with their cars. It's just, it's just an awful, awful situation. Police officers included can be harmed in this way. And anyway, so the point is, is that when our media, which we want a free media uh, points their cameras at these sorts of things um, and spree killing and other kinds of stuff like this, then you, there's a group of people who are desperate enough for attention and love and adoration because they're not getting it in their, in their normal life that they will turn to that as an option. They will turn to spree killing and car chases to get a little bit of notoriety because they're so desperate for love and attention and acceptance and that's our fault. So gun control, absolutely. You know, let's let's try to have a rational conversation about that and pass rational laws. Let's 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 try. I doubt it'll ever happen given the political landscape and the way the money works in, in the United States. Because there's no there's no anti NRA. You know, NRA has a just a ton of money and a and a lot of lobbies. And and incidentally, they also have like a constitutional amendment, right? <laughs> Which doesn't help things, but but um, uh, and then a cultural divide between you know the the right and the left. But um, but anyway, yeah, we should we should try. You know, let's, let's give it a shot. Um, mental health, absolutely. Are you kidding me? We we need to be for a number of reasons. We need to be spending more tax dollars on that. But in my opinion, if we really want to affect change, we need to look at how the media covers this. And we really need to look at ourselves. See that? See that's why I think a lot of people don't talk about this. Is because it requires people to look at themselves. Because in my experience, most people are are fascinated with these spree killers. Why did he do it? You know, what sort of gun did he use? How many people did he kill? I mean, that that's one of the things that I, it often really kind of grosses me out about this media coverage. Even even in my own impulses, is oh, there's a you know there's a spree killing in in Florida. How many people died? You know, that's the first question. Like. You know, because if it was just three, it's like, eh, you know, it's not really a news story. But 17, whoa, that's a lot of people. How terrible, you know. It's this really sick kind of uh, thing that we, that you know, we exhibit in that situation. And when we have to look at ourselves, we don't want to do that, right? We want to blame, we want to blame Republicans for their, for their, you know, being in the pocket of the NRA. We want to blame not we want to blame mental health people. We want to blame this and that, you know, we want to blame, uh, assault rifles or whatever. And it's just like, yeah, absolutely. These are all factors. I'm not saying they're not, and they are, and we should try to do something. I mean, imagine if we could just snap our fingers and get rid of every single assault rifle and every single, I don't know, just every single gun that's really easy to kill someone, you know, there's certain guns that I see. I grew up in rural areas, sort of suburban rural areas, uh, around Seattle, and a lot of my friends hunted, and they would have like a small caliber um, shotgun or a small caliber rifle that they would shoot pheasant with, or um, you know rabbits with, <laughs> you know small things. And these guns were cumbersome to shoot several rounds at once. Right, you had to, um, you know, the shotgun could hold I don't know like five rounds or three rounds or something, and the rifle you had to load every single. <laughs> Every single bully had to load. And so, you know, uh, guns like that probably, you know, they could still kill, obviously. And uh, But imagine if we could just snap our fingers and just, um, you know, in the public, just get rid of all those guns. I- I'm guessing that there would be, a, a, you know, a, a reduction in the amount of people who are killed by these spree killings, right? Um, so it's not like gun control isn't um, going to work. Now, some people would say... I don't want to pay that price. I want my assault rifles. Okay, you know, whatever you're entitled to your opinion. But anyway, my point is, is that we have to look at ourselves. We have to look at how we are consuming media. 
we have to look at what we are encouraging. We have to look at the sort of blind clicking that we do. Um, and, and, and so, so along those lines, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, ask you to do one thing when these things happen. I want, when, when the next spree killing that happens, which will happen, uh, I want you to think about what you click on. I want you to think about what you're interested in. Are you, are you interested in the carnage? Are you, are you, are you fascinated with the images of gore? Are you fascinated with the story of the killer? And if that's the case, try not try to resist that. Try to resist clicking on that because every time you click on that, it's just another penny in the pocket for the media companies to do that kind of stuff. You know, there are things that the media actually doesn't do because of decorum and because it doesn't make them money. You know, it's not like the media uh, talks about everything. There, for for example, how many good things are happening in the United States right now? How many how many positive things are happening? Well, for whatever reason, we don't click on those headlines. You know, um, kid rises above his station and manages to get into Harvard <laughs> or whatever. Um, you know, girl uh, fights back against toxic masculinity <laughs> or something. You know, it's like these things, people don't click on that. People click on, uh, you know, uh, mentally ill man kills 15 in Texas. You know, it's, it's, it's something that for whatever reason we click on. And so um, you just please do your part. I try, that's what I try to do. I, I try to be like, well, you know, I have an impulse to be curious about this. But what am I? What am I doing? How am I contributing? You know, think of it like recycling. You know, when you recycle or when you try to conserve electricity, it's a small thing you're doing. You're not doing much, but every, if everyone does their part, we can actually affect change. Uh, and so, uh, you know, you can do your part in this. And so that's what I'll leave you with. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there. Let me know what you think of what I've been saying. Um, I'm guessing you have opinions. You can email me at contact at psychology in Seattle. That's contact at psychology in Seattle. You can also become a patron by going to patreon.com. When you become a patron, you get access to all of our patron-only episodes in which we do deep dives into various different awesome topics such as psychopathy and these kinds of things. All right. Well, thanks for joining me. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. (laughs) 